Can we see history as a good omen? I think we can. Um, a lot of the lessons that we, valuable lessons that we have are from history. And that in itself is, it's sort of like a blueprint of how to go forward within our lives into the future. We cannot necessarily have fruitful futures without the acknowledgement of the past. The past is so important in how we can um, dream up new futures and how we can come up with um, solutions. We think that a lot of the problems that we have now are, are new, but some of them are not. We just need to look into history. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, we have a very big throwaway culture and it is really important in trying to, um, I suppose, improve our societies in looking back to the past. So in that way, history is very important and is a good omen. It's, it is that blueprint, you know, that we need. Is there a better belief in, is there a belief in a better future? better moment. My name, Stembile, means trust or hope, depending on how you use it. I think in the very essence of who I am, there is, it's hard not to be hopeful. My grandparents gave me this name. They gave me the name because they were hopeful that situations will change in the future, that we may be in a present that may be uncertain, and that the, the past is maybe not as um, glorious as we want it to be, but you are a seed that will become a valuable fruit. And the seed as well is their genes, is their histories, is their ancestors that are my ancestors. And so in trans, transporting ourselves into the future, we do really need to look back. We do need to look back at our histories and not only think about our histories from a, a point of, um, of lack. There are valuable gems in our histories that are, I suppose, the hope that we need when we are uncertain. And this is why in my work, I've also kind of looked at um, names and how names are those blueprints that our ancestors are putting for us in case we forget who we are, you know, to say, because um, they sometimes, may know that difficult times are going to come ahead. So they'll give you names that, that are whispers, really. So your parents, for instance, may call you Sakile, which means to build. And maybe around you, there is no wealth whatsoever in terms of financial wealth. But that, that is that hope that in the future, we will build. We will be what we, what we envision for ourselves. And those kinds of names, I don't think they necessarily just come from us. I think my grandmother had a whisper from our ancestors to say, name her trust, name her hope, and just watch and see what will happen. Working from the foundations of historical narrative and its constructs, African knowledge systems, and a contemporary take on colonial wounds, South African artist Setimbilem Zezane has an interdisciplinary practice that goes beyond critique. 
Her work suggests the possibility of generating new spaces that invite reflection and pave the way for other conversations. Mzenane's works question and negotiate the presence and absence of the black female body in the history of South Africa and the political conflict involved in its representation, a trace of a colonized people in public and private space. Gestures that persist in the form of living sculptures or embodiments, as she prefers to call them, and a certain predilection for ephemeral materials that stems from an interpretation of cosmology and history that seeks to create spaces of conversation and healing in dialogue with the great beyond, and also with the ground beneath our feet and with the more than human. In this podcast, Setimbile Mzenane talks about her rejection of modern throwaway culture, convinced that the history and experience of ancestors contain clues and know-how that allow us to imagine different futures. She believes that good omens must enter through spirituality and dialogue with ancestors. Art is simply a tool. So the way that I see my work, I shy away from a lot of terms. And I understand that we need titles in order to understand the world around us. And because of that, I've, um, I suppose, been subdued to give some terms to my work so that I can say that it is not that. It is embodiments. It is not performance art. But how I would describe my work is that my work is a space of conversations. I don't want it to be put in neat boxes that my work is for, um, is about rather, is about um, black women only, or it's feminist, or it's performance art, or it's um, spiritual art, or ritualistic art, or black art, or, African art, I, I shy away from all of these terms because then it means that there is no room for it to grow and be anything else. As I've, um, as I've, I've said, like I look into um, modalities of being through nature in thinking about just the connections that we have with ourselves through, through ourselves, through, um, through plant technology, through the air, through the multiverses. And this is how I would like for my work to be understood, that it's conversations, it's conversations around being. I think it's very much like when I was that five-year-old in front of the mirror, staring back at myself and my physical form disappearing. That's what it feels like when I create space for another being to um, inhabit my body for that moment. It feels very much like well, re-entering the body um, usually is when there is a discomfort, pain, standing in one 
position for too long. Um, it could be that there's too much wind and and there's the discomfort of feeling cold or it's hot. That would be the moments when I'd re-enter my body and it would feel it would feel as if I need to stop. But then there's a moment of also meditating. So I come back into the body, there's the the pain or the, the discomfort. And then it takes meditation work to get back into clearing that space and allowing the figure to re-enter my body. And it's really a negotiation. It's a conversation between the being and myself, which is a conversation that happens well in advance before the live work happens because I need to connect with the being in preparing for, for her or for them to be within the space. And this is through research. This is not just research um, in looking at books or watching videos, but it's also a spiritual kind of research where there is this interaction and this engagement of, of speaking to the figure and asking for permission, whether this is okay, whether it is that they can be there on the day. So invite them into, into, um, into my body for the day. And this happens in private. I don't really talk much about that. It's a, um, a process that I go through by myself. And, and so when the actual live work is happening, the negotiation is there. It's like, but we spoke about this, you know, not like, it's fine, it's fine. Um, can I, can I, can I disappear for a moment again so that you can be here? Because they also get tired, you know, <laughs> they get tired. Like we've been here for too long, we haven't been heard, and it is time for us to leave. And then sometimes it really is time. Then it's like, okay, I will not stop them because it's not necessarily also this endurance is not about how long can can I stand there as Tembi, like can the figure stand there? It's it's an endurance of of presence, of spiritual presence, of physical presence, of historical presence. And this is a navigation that also happens with the space. The space, the environment has its own spirit as well. So there's a lot of things that are, that are play, at play and there's a lot of constant negotiation. And this is something that I still think about in um, the, the current works that I make that are not necessarily living sculptural works where the endurance is that I need to stand in a particular space for a long time. The endurance is longer projects, spending longer months researching them in various ways and um, talking about a particular subject matter that is very uncomfortable. They need, there needs to be a, a kind of endurance in that, but then the endurance as well is, is, a, is a conversation that I'm having with myself because endurance also kind of feels like it needs to be resilience. And sometimes there's this fatigue in being resilient. There is um, discomfort in being resilient in a space where you feel that it is now time for an ushering in of, of care, of, of, of love, of, of gentleness, which is the space that I'm in right now.
I suppose where the journey really began is about um, 10 years ago or so, uh, where I was not quite certain where my art career would be going. I didn't know whether I really had a voice or had anything to say. And um, I suppose having finished university, I had started working in a gallery and I would interact with the city in a different way than I did when I was still studying. And in this interaction, I, ha I would see more of the city. I would see the architecture, the cobblestone, the colonial history really like coming out and um, greeting me every day. And part of this greeting was an unfamiliarity of um, not seeing um, parts of my own identity, parts of my own history. And it did really bother me. And so at some point, I think it was um, a public holiday. So it wasn't necessarily at, in the beginning a conceptual decision that I would create a series that's based on South African political public holidays. It was just that I wasn't working on that day. <laughs> um, it was Heritage Day of 2013. I decided that I was really fed up in not seeing the histories of black women. I realized how damaging this was. And so I had a plinth that was a failed project um, that I made in, uh, I think, my final year of university. And I, it was now a coffee table. So I decided that I was going to take this coffee table plinth and I was going to stand on top of it. And I was going to represent part of my history that I thought was not visible. So on Heritage Day, I dressed in my Zulu regalia and I went to various parts of Cape Town and stood there with a beaded mask and um, beaded bra as well as a black um, skirt with beads as well. So it's Zulu regalia. And um, this was the only project of that series where the figure was in different parts of the city. All the other artworks within the series are really just in one, one center point that was site-specific. And so with this one, I, I got to go to the train station in Rosebank where I lived, um, close to where I lived, as well as the taxi rank in town, in Cape Town Central. Um, and then I went inside Izigo Museums, but I didn't take the plinth when I went in there. I left the plinth on the outside and I stood in front of, um, it was the cultural section where um, you would have a whole lot of um, uh, regalia from different cultures and people were not quite sure whether I was real or not. Um, and then the last space that I went to was the work that you know today as Untitled Heritage Day, which was in front of Parliament. And this is where I really understood wh what my work was about. And um, outside of Parliament, there was this um, horse and Louis Bertha standing on it and on his base was written farmer, warrior, um, I think statesman as well. And on my base, it was blank. 
no history written, no titles. And for me, it became quite apparent that, oh, okay, there is something really um, important about this moment. There were different kinds of audience members that went past me um, in various spots of, of, of that particular work. The kids were always amazed. The kids would just linger on, you know, sometimes the parents or the adults would be in a hurry. They're trying to get somewhere. And this is what happens in the city, right? Um, you know, you don't always stop and look at the statues around. You might see them, but subconsciously you don't really engage with them. So I was like really interested in the kids. The kids, when I would make these um, works around living sculptures, because it wasn't just the public holiday series, I moved on to make other works that um, followed a similar format where there would be a plinth and there would be a historical being or figure or spiritual being that I am, I am embodying. And the kids would always be like, what's going on? You know, tugging their parents, you know, asking um, what's happening. And so I think it took me back to my childhood where I felt as if, you know, we're just here. We don't know why we're here, but we are just here. And at some time, at, at some point, you know, I remember looking in front of a mirror um, and staring really deeply into my own reflection until it felt like it disappeared. And feeling as if I was transported to a space of nothingness but everything as well and I must have heard a voice or something that brought me back into the room but as I was coming back into the room and recognizing the form that was in front of me again I really questioned whether this person this thing this being exists I guess it is there were very existential questions I think I was, I was going through at, I think it was like five years old, which are now translating in my current work where I'm interested in um, African knowledge systems, um, cosmologies and, and, and such subject matter. But back then, I think when I was reflecting about it, it felt like I was reflecting about an erasure of, of my identity within the spaces that I inhabit on the everyday. It felt as if um, this little black girl could not see herself because she couldn't see people that inspire her, that take care of her every day, that bathe her, that teach her. And so it, it, it felt like this was a pressing um, series that needed to be explored. How I related to monuments, um, in my early career is very different to how I relate to them now. I think every person kind of goes through a period where they're obsessed about something and they see it everywhere and it just is a point of entry that they want to um, always um, engage with in some sort of conversation, um, whether it is through making artworks or through talks or through physically just being in the presence of that thing. Uh, I don't relate to monuments and statues anymore. It's something that is, um, I know is there and I understand the intrigue around it with the conversations around the world about um, do we still need them? Um, should we take them down? But now I think I see the space around them. Um, it's It's like I have now subconsciously omitted them from my own consciousness, unless it is someone that looks like me.
because then it feels like, oh, this is interesting how we are relaying erased or omitted histories. Um, so now I, I move around the city and, well, in new cities, I will notice because I'm like, oh, this is how the colonial history has been represented. It's quite, um, they're very impressive monuments here, very large, um, not as large as the ones that we have back in South Africa. And I think it, it, it also kind of reflects the colonial conquest that was, that was being promoted and is still being promoted through having these monuments there. So between the works of the public holiday series or my living sculptural works, there was always consideration of site, the history of the site and what it is that was, I wanted to communicate or I felt compelled to communicate. Um, South Africa has got a very um, hard history of apartheid as well as colonialism. So most of the sites that I would find uh, sites of inquiry would be in Cape Town. And once a site was chosen or I was moved to go to that site, I would consider the, the history around the site. I would consider um, the figure that would be called to be brought into that site, as well as um, the, the, the layers of meaning through dress. Um, for instance, Youth Day was a, a work that I did in Johannesburg, one of the very few that I did in Johannesburg. And that was done in um, Walter Sisulu Square in Tliptown, Soweto. And the Youth Day is a very poignant moment in South Africa where the youth of uh, 1976 were fighting for um, their rights. You know, um, they were rebelling against the education system, which was um, um, taught in Afrikaans. And also it was called the Bantu system, which relegated um, the youth to, I suppose, like manual labor. There was no, the, the system was inferior, basically. And the students um, rebelled in 1976. And so, I decided that it was a good place to have that work in Cliptown because that's where the Freedom Charter of 1950, so 1954, I believe it is, I may be wrong. Um, that's where it was drafted. And the concerns of the students in 1976 were concerns that were also in the Freedom Charter of 1955, 54. And so it felt very, um, it felt that it was, good side to find this find this this the sculpture this living sculpture that I would create which was a temporary sculpture of course you know there's an ephemerality to the works that I was creating where um, the figure would be standing on a plinth for anything from an hour and I suppose the longest was just under four hours and in that time people would interact and engage with the figure in whatever way that they felt they needed to. There were no instructions. There was no instructions to um, speak to the figure or to, to, there were no instructions. <laughs> In other works, however, there would be um, a marker that's put on the floor 
and you could write on the plinth the thoughts that you had, whatever it was, you know, there was there would be no provocation really. Um, but there was one work where um, the provocation was lest we forget. And this was again on June 16th, which is Freedom Youth Day, but this was in Cape Town. And the work that was done was the Freedom Charter. Yes, was the, sorry, not, not the Freedom Charter, it was the Charter, so long ago now. <laughs> and this was in front of the Slave Lodge. Um, but in most instances, there were no provocations. So sometimes people would try and speak to the figure. Sometimes people would touch the figure. Um, there were a lot of comments um, from different age, ages, different genders. The men in most instances were rude, uh, very sexist. Um, but sometimes they would be very respectful, but in them respecting the figure that would be on the plinth, they would disrespect women around them that be walking um, um, in the same in the same area. So for Heritage Day, Untitled Heritage Day, uh, where the figure was in at the taxi rank, which taxi rank in South Africa is a site of violence. It's not very safe. There have been many instances where women have been violated um, for the way that they're dressed, not just being women, really. So this was a very scary thing for for me as Tembile to to um, to decide I was going to do. But as soon as I would get on top of the plinth, I would, uh, I suppose, um, undress my identity and I would no longer be myself and the figure would have to assume this position of representing themselves. And so with that, the fear, my fear and my anxieties would leave. So with the Untitled Heritage Day work, because of the way I was dressed, I was in traditional um, garb and the men, because most of them, the, t the taxi drivers are traditional men they would respect me. I got marriage proposals and <laughs> all sorts of um, compliments. And then there'd be other women who'd be walking, coming out of a taxi maybe, watching this from afar. They have somewhere to go. They're, you know, they're not waiting for the taxi to fill up. They're going to work. And they found it very interesting, but they could not stop and watch and... Um, reflects upon what this meant for them. And while this would, was happening, the men would look back at them as they would pass by and they're like, now it's hard to translate this in English, but they basically um, insult them like, oh, no, 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 you guys are the, uh, the village bicycle, you know, we're, we're used to y'all, you know, walk away, we don't want you here. This is a real woman. This is what you should look like which was hard to see and experience because this is what happens in our society. There's, um, there's a hierarchy of, of value, of appreciation um, with, with regards to how women are viewed, you know, um, our creed, our class, our gender, our race you know, determines where it is on the scale that you are considered valuable. 
So these temporary monuments were never planned. Oh, rather, these temporary monuments were never announced. There was never an invitation. The, <laughs> the interaction between what people would be seeing, these living sculptures, and themselves was always a surprise. Um, I did have a following. So once I did the first one, the second one, and the third one, people wanted to know when the next one is happening. And this was never something that I was going to tell people because it was not about having um, an art audience or it was never going to be something that that invites people who would like to um, experience a performance because I think towards the end of the pu public holiday series, I started to understand my work, not necessarily hard for me to use this word. I use it for lack of a better word. Or I do have a better word, actually, but people's understanding is not always going to um, meet meet my understanding of how I regard these works. So I speak about my works as embodiments or as life works. And so when people who are, are not necessarily museum goers or in the um, art world encounter these works, I, that is the true reflection of how South Africans feel, of how a general public feels, because it is so, it's, it's real. You know, no one has a, a tailored experience of, of how to engage with such a happening. And we see these human statues every day on the street and we ignore them. You know, some people will throw money um, into their hat. But for me, this was not the point. So there were some audience members who were wondering what's going to happen next. Why is she just still, you know, should we put money? Um, I remember taking it into... Um, and the audience there was so different because this was in a township in Cape Town and people literally stood with me. They stood with me. I can't remember how long it was, but it was about an hour or slightly more. They stood with me chatting to each other, sometimes in silence. And it was so amazing. <laughs> it felt like that in itself was part of the work. This was on Women's Day. And the work was close to um, a taxi rank as well. And this was very, very frightening because Stembile felt like she was bare-breasted. But the figure, um, I was in the guise of my great-grandmother. And it was, that gave me confidence that she would be there, this, her spirit would be there for me and was there in that moment. And so we had all these people standing there, both men and women speaking in this Xhosa. My Xhosa at the time was not that great. So sometimes I really didn't understand. Um, but there was a woman who came, <laughs> who came from the audience and she had to go to work now. You know, she had a bag and she was just she was not irritated that this was taking long and nothing was happening, but she was carrying her bag and I could see that she had somewhere to go. And I could see as well that she felt like, oh, you know, she really wanted to stay longer, but she couldn't. So she, she had the confidence to come very close to the plinth. And then she said to me, And then she put 
10 rand note into this um, clay pot that I had. The translation of what she said is that what you're doing here is really amazing. Don't ever change. And I came back into my body in that moment because I felt that I needed to acknowledge what she was saying to me. And she's an elder, you know, and also this gesture of wanting to give me money. It's not the point. <laughs> it really wasn't the point. But I'm standing on a plinth. It takes a lot of confidence to go to a public space where everyone is watching and not only um, engage with the person at um, life-size level, but like to get onto your toes, stretch out your arm and, and give this person a token of your appreciation. And she put it in the pot and she was the only person who did this. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was also glad that she was the only person. And, um, and then she went by, she went by on um, whatever she needed to do. There was also another engagement where there was this woman who understood that this was about Women's Day. And she came around and she had her own moment in front of this, <laughs> this piece that I was making. And she was singing her own songs that she had made up. She was like, I'm a bele bele, I'm a bele bele. And people were laughing because she was saying boobs, 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 you know. <laughs> and then um, she said, Viva Women's Day, you know. Which means um, you strike a woman, you strike a rock which was a slogan that was um, reiterated in the Women's March. And people were tired of her at some point because she was around the area for quite a while. And they're like, okay, you're stealing the spotlight, get away, you know? And they kept on saying things like, she's, she's mad, she's crazy. Um, but I don't think this was the case. I think that she was drinking, but I think that, um, she really understood the piece. She understood that I was talking about um, issues around womanhood. And she was the only one brave enough to interact and engage with it. I'm not sure whether she has some um, mental wellness issues or um, alcoholism, but I find that in our society, because people may struggle with mental um, health issues as well as alcoholism, that we relegate them as unproductive, that their opinions do not matter. But it is environments and situations that sometimes foster this kind of unwellness. And she, she in in the unwellness of, 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 I suppose, drinking in public and and being a spectacle, she was also reiterating, you know, that things need to change for, for black women, things need to change within the society. And she was directly engaged. She had the bravery to actually do it. Um, so this was like a very poignant moment within the whole public holiday series um, in terms of interactions with, with, with my audience.
in the peace pasha and nibizongabangwele. Pasha is a sculptural piece that is made out of wax and homemade snuff as well as and and the the hands that are this sculpture that I've made are on um on white sand that are placed on the ground. And then in contrast, Nibizangabangwele is a video piece where there's a background of clouds that are moving very fast. Well, not fast, um, but faster than usual. And these live hands that come out of the ground with the same sand that you're seeing in the in the sculptural installation. And they come out of the ground and they, they are animated into movement. And I think it's a very beautiful conversation between the two because the one work looks like a traditional sculptural piece. Um, and the other one is a digital piece that is quite whimsical and <laughs> and um, quite quite fun. And so, but at the same time, the sculptural piece is not necessarily traditional sculptural piece because it uses, um, well, in a Western context, let me say that, um, because it uses both wax as well as snuff, which are materials that may not last that long. So it's a, I think these are very interesting conversations for, for museums to think about, like how they will preserve it after it's um, out of my hands. <laughs> it's funny because it's like a handpiece. <laughs> I laugh at my own jokes, <laughs> but um, but sometimes these works are not meant to to last very long, and I'm okay with that. I'm I'm okay with decay. I'm okay with um, with a work shifting, and and I think with the other piece that's a digital piece, it becomes more permanent in a collection because um, well, you can save files, and it's in the cloud somewhere. But at the same time, it's um, it speaks of like two different things. So Pasha is a piece where um, I'm speaking about the practice of connecting with the ancestors through using snuff, through using impepo. Oh yes, so there's also impepo, which is um, a plant that is used to connect to the ancestors. You burn it, and and then there's the wax, and the wax. Um, I guess it, it's the connotation of actually connecting with the with the ancestors. You need to have candles. You need to have snuff. You need to have imbepo. So I have all of these elements, um, but in a sculptural form that is um, in shape of the hands. And the hands are in a gesture that looks like it is sprinkling um, uh, snuff on the ground, which is what you do when you communicate with the ancestors. Um, and then the other piece are these hands are these hands that are like emerging out of the ground and there is um, uh, one hand that has feathers that are uh, feathers covering the wrist and then the two other hands at the back are um, the hands are have these um, the other piece has two hands with cuffs that are Victorian so that like very um, um white uh, kind of peacock kind of shape that is covering the hand. And they kind of like dance around, but in their dancing around, there are gestures that that communicate something, 
right? And at first, it kind of feels like they are moving together in harmony. But then at some point, there is sort of like a, a tension, it seems, between these hands. And then at some point, there is a fist rising from the ground slowly and then descending back into the ground and then rising from the ground again and then descending into the ground. And that work is really a work that um, speaks to how as black practitioners, it feels like there's been this ushering in of, um, I suppose that our ancestors have been speaking to us for a very long time and there's there are these black practitioners such as myself, as artists, as writers, as curators, um, who are starting to be the voice that the ancestors have been wanting for us to speak. And, 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 and we have to be very attentive in how we listen to what they have to say and bring in these conversations, not just within broader society, but also into um, physical buildings, into um, the gallery spaces, into the white cube. And these conversations are difficult conversations to have because it's not like ancestors back then were also in harmony with each other. You know, um, there were tensions, but these are conversations that need to happen. And also there's a conversation around healing. I think that when we talk about like healers, um, it also kind of speaks to how the world is in a space of illness. Because how is it that we don't talk about healers as teachers, as scientists? You know, we refer to them as healers because our society is ill. And and so these are all the conversations that are kind of within those two pieces in different ways and their different materialities. So I'm currently creating a work that is at the um, the Castle of Good Hope in Cape Town, which is the Dutch fort that was created in the 1700s. And that history is a very is very fertile with like violence. When you enter the site as well, um, many people have spoken about how there's this eerie feeling being in there and it's quite heavy and dense. It used to be um, a site where people were enslaved, but it also um, became later on a military base. Um, and now it functions as a cultural site, a historical cultural site that has a number of museums in there. So it has the slave lodge. It has, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's a military museum and the Kamisa Museum. And those are the ones that I know. 
And the how it's changed over, over time is also quite interesting in um, the ushering of democracy. Um, I remember being there as a student, um, 20, it might have been 2012, I think, or 2013. And, you know, walking up in there and just being really interested about sight and wanting to to learn about the, um, the, the Castle of Good Hope, because I had heard that, you know, there were unmarked graves on the site. And speaking to, um, I can't remember if it was the director of the time or he had some position, like a higher position at the place. Now, I, I, I mean, I was like this young student. I was like, can you please show me where all the unmarked graves are? And he was shook. He opened up all his eyes and he was just like, what? He pulled me aside. And then he whispered to me, he's like, you don't just ask that. I'm like, why not? I was like, why not? Like, everybody knows, you know, that this is something that is a historical fact of this place. It's just hard to access the knowledge. And I'm just trying to access the knowledge. Like, where are the archives? Um, and he's like, yes. But he was trying to sensitively say just that, like, there's a protocol and a way to do, um, to ask the questions that I am asking. But I'm... I've been very unpolished in my early career about things. I'm just like, these issues need to be addressed and let's do it. Um, and he said to me, we don't really know where they are, but we know that they are here. But I ask that you don't ask anybody else's question. And of course, it, it's, a, it's an embarrassing kind of historical fact of the, of the site, you know, of, of this um, fort. And now entering it in 2022, where there's a different director, the space has changed in that they have a whole lot of more um, indigenous cultural activities that take place on the site, which is something that was not necessarily happening back then. And um, it's, it's just really transformed, but that energy is still in there. I remember going in there and saying, okay, if I'm going to create an installation in here, you know, it would be good to kind of just cleanse the site before. And the director laughed and he's like, it'll probably be like the hundredth um, cleansing that happens here. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. You know, there are many spirits here. You never know. Some of them might have run away and they don't want to be found. And, you know, you always constantly have to do um, a cleansing in sites like this, that there's like um, um, spirits that have not been put to rest, you know. So I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. And so I'm making an installation um, in the chapel that um, was owned by the Dutch Reformed Church. It has been very difficult to find information around it. I've gone to the National Archives online as well. I've been looking. And there seems to be this like gap in this Dutch history and the colonial um, occupation of the Dutch in South Africa. And that happened because um, later on we became um, colonized by the British. And so it's been very difficult to access that knowledge. And so I, I thought, okay, let me try and look at not the church, but look at the indigenous stories that were present. And in trying to find and, and find out more about this space, found out that there is this river that's called the Kamisa River 
that comes um, all the way from um, Table Mountain, which is one of the wonders of the world, and goes through the city and leaves the city coast right into the ocean. And there's millions and millions of liters that leave the mountain and go straight into the ocean and is unused by the city of Cape Town, which is a very big concern because um, I think it was about three years ago, we had a water crisis in Cape Town. And I found out that the reason why um, this river was kind of, um, there's this built environment that um, happened over the river to kind of um, hide it, was because the British in the 1800s um, considered the river to be one of the um, reasons why people were getting sick because people were littering and it caused illness. And so we've really not really done anything about that. Now reflecting upon this history and trying to figure out what it's going to look like within that space. And water is just something that has been very present in my consciousness, um, in my work. And I've been seeing this like color blue a lot. So I'm like really, really, really um, kind of obsessed with it at the moment. Um, so I'm creating this sculpture that has um, this blue background and these blue staffs that kind of disappear into the wall. And you can only see them with like these intonations of like gold thread. And then there's this long braid of, not braid, a long um, weave of hair that kind of emulates the Kamisa River. And the word Kamisa means sweet water. I use various uh, materials in my work. Um, some of the materials are hair, which can give you a very like visceral experience. Um, wood is also something that that is has been present in my work through furniture. Um, the furniture is often colonial furniture, Victorian, and and I. And mirrors as well, something that you'll see a lot within my work, as well as like metals, so bells, brass bells, and um, um, irons, those old school irons. So uh, there's always like a range of of materials that I'm always like grappling with because these materials speak. They have, they have a history. You know, they are the witnesses to history when we are no longer there as well like furniture, sees and hears everything that happens in a room. And I think this is why 
I've used Victorian furniture, um, having grown up in a household where my mother revered Victorian furniture, so much so that it felt like we should not sit on it. You know, and, and, and I think this also goes back into thinking about how we we um, place value on on these structures or monuments outside. We place so much value that the human quality, you know, is is reduced and made inferior. And so I as much as as the Victorian furniture is really beautiful, it's also quite repulsive in its history. But in looking at Sandu Mufugeng's uh, Black Photo album, I saw how people were also kind of um, embracing this, this colonial history that had been um, given to them. But within these images, striking poses in how they wanted to represent themselves. So there was a kind of um, a pride in that, yes, I may be in these clothes and they're not my clothes. And sometimes they're like, these are the clothes that I want to show. Yes, you know, it's not my history, but I look really good in this in, in these clothes. But also wanting to be seen, confronting the camera. And and so I, I would marry the two together in that I would take images using my own body, um, dressed in Victorian wear, and enveloping those histories within Victorian furniture. And, and so that would be like the furniture pieces and then the ones where I would use hair. The hair first came from um, a cultural, cultural perspective where I'd be thinking about how within a Zulu culture, um, hair was not something that was gendered. It was really something that was used to, uh, I suppose like, uh, celebrate, celebrate a history, celebrate, celebrate your body. We, we would wear hair on our arms. We would wear it as a skirts, you know, as, as, as hats as well. So it became a functional thing as well. And I was like really interested in how this, this, this very um, uh, beautiful material could be turned into something else, that it could evolve and take on a different meaning. Um, and so I started to make um, wearable sculptures out of hair, or I would make um, um, installations out of hair, kind of speaking about the histories around hair where there's issues of race, of, of, of class, um, there'd be gender um, politics in, in, in there as well, but there'd be also ancestry. We are tethered um, to our ancestors sometimes through our hair. And um, as you can see, I am really fond of gray hair. <laughs> I used to uh, marvel at my great grandmother's hair, you know, just like, oh, wow, you know, she'd always cover it up in a duck um, piece of material. But when she would take it off or it would fall off the, the material, then there'd be this like white hair underneath this and and also her skin was always like lighter <laughs> closer to the hair than it was like um uh lower down you know so it'd be like this wonder she really looked like this this like superhero in, in a sense you know and so that kind of like has um come into my work where i use specifically grayish white looking hair 
to speak about, yes, maturity, but also ancestry. And so that is something that I carry within my work. And then there's the mirrors where there's this reflection that happens um, consistently with an image. So you might be looking at a photograph, but in the photograph, you're also seeing reflections of yourself because the mirror has kind of been um, faded away or chipped away and underneath this reflection of yourself, there's an image of something else. And so you're kind of constantly um, in two spaces where you're in the presence of yourself looking at this image, but you're also looking at this image, looking back at you. And so there's like this um, ghost, ghostly kind of experience in experiencing some of those works that I've made where there is a mirror. And I guess the metaphor of the mirror um, is really about reflection, is about transporting yourself into yourself, away from yourself. And it's really from that moment that I had as a child of looking into the mirror. I like, I, I really enjoy materials that are also alive. Um, I've used soil in my work. I've used candles, but not just the wax of the candles, but the flames of the, of, of, um, of the burning candle. And it's been important for me to have a burning flame and I do sometimes get into trouble with museums because they have health and safety protocols. But I've been reflecting about um, the use of candles within my work and how for me it is not such a huge risk. Yes, fire is dangerous, we all know this. And But I grew up um, at some point when I would go and um, visit in KwaZulu-Natal, we didn't have electricity for the longest of time. And so we'd always use candles. And I remember we'd always be arriving around 8 p.m. at night, and so it's dark. And the only thing that we would look at or that, that would light up the room was this candle. And being a child, listening to the adults talking about whatever they were talking about, I would be really mesmerized by this dancing, like, a flickering candle, you know, and I just kind of lose myself in in its motion, in its um, in, in how how bright it would make the room, or how dim it would be, and how it smelled. I was very um, um, obsessed by the smell, like even in, in putting it out, and that smoke kind of rises. So this is something that's kind of like stayed in my consciousness, and then in going to um, some um, ceremonies that would be done sometimes, you'd find that there would be a, f uh, a fire in the middle of a room. 
right? And I mean, I grew up in in Soweto in Johannesburg. This was not really normal for us. So I'd be so enchanted by this fires in the house, you know? And <laughs> I would be really excited to see how people also navigate the space in relation to this fire and how it brought people together and how um, sometimes people would dance around it, but no one got hurt. No one got hurt, the house didn't burn down. It just existed. And so at some point, because at, at, at first I would be very irritated by these questions around like the, 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 the candles, do they need to actually burn? I'm like, it's the artwork, what do you mean? It's the artwork. I'd get so irritated by it. But over time, I actually understand where the irritation comes from because I couldn't really place it. And the irritation was that I've seen this happen and there was no danger. So why is it that when it comes to a space where you have all the technology that you need, you still believe that this is something that is impossible? There are health and safety protocols to safeguard collections, to safeguard the building, but there should be health and safety protocols to safeguard the existence of living works as well, to allow them to exist, even in them having the potential to, to be dangerous. But it feels like from a museum perspective, that is something that is ignored because we only can understand artworks if they are objects, if they sit neatly on a wall or they sit on top of a plinth. And for other artworks that may be living and breathing, it is very hard to change our understanding and around how they too remind us of our own existence, that they, are too, they too are as important as the, the artworks that are on the wall. And so I love these, these artworks that create this tension because they create the conversations as well as to why it is that we even do what we do as artists, as curators, as writers. Can, is it that we only need to think about our practices from a one-dimensional perspective? What happens when we kind of complicate these ideas? Are we willing to go there? Are we willing to be challenged and say, I actually don't know, but I am willing to try? Or are we just so set in our ways that it's just easy to engage with artworks that are just on the wall? So this is why I have these questions because it, I, I'm a bit of a trickster in my, in my own practice, I suppose. Um, but I do have the artworks as well that are kind of um, easier to deal with. So bra spells, um, iron, uh, iron, I don't know what it's called. I just call them old school irons, the ones that you put on top of um, the stove. And I incorporate them into, um, into the hair um, and make sound, sound um, sculptures out of them where people can actually ring the bells or there's a big bell in the center of the room. Now that one is not necessarily interactive in terms of taking the clap off the bell and ringing it yourself, but it is interactive in that because of the candles, <laughs> going back to the candles, I'm talking about Signal Her Return, yeah. I think it's Signal Her Return 1, 
I've got two. Yes, signal her return one. Um, the sound of the of of the bell is still also um, within the space where it's recorded, where the clapper is used, but also there's a pitter patter that happens on the outer base of the of the of the of the bell and a scratching and it's just like how do we make sounds out of objects that are supposed to that are that are are um i suppose produced to sound a particular way and what if we complicate what 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 sounds are supposed to come out of it by creating new sounds and singing into the vessel of the bell um and and yeah, so these these works, I, I really enjoy the works that are installation that kind of change the way that we move around the room and engage with ourselves because with Signal Her Return One, for instance, people, some people sat, some people lay down to experience the work because not only is it a sound piece, but also the, f the flicker of the flames does something to the people, you know? And, and the warmth in the room, that was all part of it. Um, these are all kind of indicative of going into spaces of healing where there are all these conditions that are outside of our everyday. You know, the temperature is different in the room. There is a heightened sense of, um, of, of, of experiencing yourself because you can kind of feel the, the hair on the back of your of your neck raise, you know, from either the sound or the smell or um, or the light in itself, how brightly it shines and, and it kind of changes because the candles are dancing, you know, and that's also because of the energies in the space that are moving. Um, so I quite enjoy these works uh, that kind of are um, sensory in all ways because knowledge is not just one dimensional it's not just visual it's it's um, through touch as well it's through through sound it's through these many senses that are we I think ignore in museums sometimes sometimes I don't know how I view knowledge because it's everything that may be around us. And it's sometimes so hard to decipher what is um, useful knowledge. And because there's, there's both useful and unuseful knowledge. It just depends on what it is that you value. And I think in thinking about how knowledge can be a space for like, fruitful or like for growth it is really important in thinking about knowledge as as this um, ever-changing thing you need to give yourself time to to absorb it as well because what you learn the one piece of knowledge that you may learn when you're five years old may mean something different when you're like 20 30 40 whatever your age may be and knowledge can, I said this recently, that knowledge can be healing, but knowledge can also be poison. So <laughs> we're constantly learning something, but it, it just depends on how it lands on you and how, and how you want to engage with it. Um, 
you can you can tailor make knowledge. You can we go into universities to do that. We go into different kinds of spaces to do that. We go into churches, you know, because you're looking for a particular knowledge that speaks to you. I remember having a moment when I was when I had edibles, right? And I was at the beach with my friend. And I think this was the first time. Yes, this was the first time that I had edibles. And I was at the beach with my two friends. And I was transported away in a similar way to when I was five years old. But this time I was describing what was happening. So maybe I didn't I didn't actually go into what I was seeing as a child, but like there was this dark space, very dark vast space with a bit of light here and there and so this moment that I was having when I um, had edibles with my friends I was describing how how we came into being and it was such a beautiful experience so I, I start speaking and I say to them we knew everything we were everything we were knowledge because we were vast, but something happened. I don't know what happened. And there was a disruption in, in the multiverse and we were all scared all of a sudden. And this fear was the ushering in of a new era. And it was also the ushering in of us becoming disconnected because the mere fact that we did not know what had happened, that there was this lightning, this this huge kind of, um, I suppose, explosion in our own understanding of ourselves meant that we had been disconnected from ourselves because how is it that we are everything but we don't know what is happening? And so there were these force fields that kind of um, pulled us into, into, um, into these singular lines and there was many lines. And I should mention that we were balls of light so there were these like balls of light that were streaming into this bigger light that was at the center. And we would go closer and closer and closer. And we were very scared. We didn't know what was happening. And as I became this ball of light that came, that went closer to this bigger light, I became born as a person. And the crying that was happening in that moment, I was crying because I understood that I had lost my sense of self. I'd lost the connection to everything because I don't know why I lost it, but it was lost. And I had become human, which meant that as a stream of thought, so this is how I'm understanding these lines that were happening. We were becoming streams of thought. We are becoming um, socialized into being particular kinds of social groupings, understanding knowledges within the world, and that we were not knowledge in its entirety. And as, as I was growing as a, as a baby into becoming a child, I was losing this understanding that I used to be knowledge in itself. I used to know everything because I was starting to learn how to be a particular kind of human. And becoming this particular kind of human meant that you will learn things like um, prejudice. You will learn to say this is important, but this is not important. The binaries, 
you're going to learn how to differentiate between people and nature. And, and then I came back to, and I was like, have I been talking this whole time? <laughs> and then we all laughed about it and we said, yes, 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 this is what you've been talking and telling us how, how the world began, basically. And I think this is how I think about knowledge. It was such a beautiful moment. And I think in different kinds of healing practices and, and shamanism, um, herbs such as cannabis has been used to have these enlightened moments to tap back into knowledge in itself because we've become so disconnected from, from um, knowledge, from ourselves, that we need to have assistance through these herbs, these very like sacred herbs that have become criminalized, of course, because I think it is because of that exactly that it's, it's to in inhibit us from connecting back to our true selves. The dream space is definitely a space of um, inspiration within my work that I am always navigating how to respectfully um, um, use it as a source of inspiration because I understand that some of the dreams that I have are quite sacred and are not necessarily supposed to be put as they are being um, transmitted to me. And so I think that having these dreams is a way of my ancestors kind of trying to communicate some of these complex um, issues that I grapple with as a person, but also issues that I would like to um, expand upon within my work. And I found out interestingly enough that there is, um, like a fourth generation ancestor that worked with their hands. So in Zulu, we call it work of the hands. Hence, um, having the work Pasha and Nibizongabangwele as um, the metaphor of the hands as well, working with our hands. Um, so the word artist um, was not necessarily a word that we use. We just said we worked with our hands. And for me, it was very encouraging to know that there was someone like me because it felt like at times that I didn't really connect with with with, with my family. They thought I was a bit strange, you know. Oh, you know, this really young child that wants to um, practice her, her traditions. She actually wants to, um, you know... Um, know about certain rituals that we no longer perform and like the interest in, in, in my heritage and my culture and the customs, you know, um, some of the family members in my, f in are just kind of, um, they don't like it. They're just like, why, you know, like 
it's so archaic. We don't need it anymore. Or maybe not that we don't need it, but it doesn't really have relevance. And so they also treat it as a thing that's like, oh, you younger generation want to want to um, bring up these issues because it's a trend. And it's like, I don't think that it's a trend. I think that our ancestors have been talking to us for such a long time that different generations have been ignoring it. And now it's coming through with much more intensity through younger generations because the times are changing. And so it's feeling more urgent for us and more turbulent um, and that we need to communicate some of these um, these messages that our ancestors need us to, to hear and to to do something, to put into practice something that they may be saying. And um, and so this is one of the reasons why I tap into my dreams and like speaking through my, my practice, which was passed down to me and, um, and reflecting upon it within, I suppose, an art space, because that's the one of the only avenues really to kind of speak up the, about these issues in this time. We call it art. Yes, it is art, but maybe it can be something else. Um, yeah.